As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Yeah, hello and welcome one and all once again to The View from the Lane, the award-winning twice-weekly Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. Um, I'm your host, Danny Kelly, and alongside me today is The Athletic's Charlie Eccleshare, James Moore, and a special guest. Uh, I'll explain why he's here. So, so hello, uh, James, and hello, Charlie. Hello, Danny. Hello, Danny. Yeah, good morning as well to special guest Seb Stafford-Bluer. Hi, Seb. Hi, Danny. Thank you very much indeed. Seb's, Seb's, Seb's ghostly presence will be explained to you in just a second. Now, on this episode... What we decided to do, as the Spurs manager hunt drags into its, I think, fifth week now, um, and I noticed that in the in the press, they're leaking to the press, they were, Daniel wants to get this done very, very soon, at least by the end of the season. That's another three weeks. That's two months. Anyway, we, the, the runners and riders appear through the mist then disappear again. Half a dozen, though, have been constants in the betting. And so what we thought we'd do in this episode is to get hold of people who not look these managers up on Wikipedia or on highlight reels on on YouTube, but who watch these leagues in which these men are operating week in, week out, and see these teams. So on this episode, we'll be getting an expert insight into those runners and riders, uh, including Nagelsmann, Xabi Alonso, Vincent Company, etc. We'll also be discussing the summer rebuild, uh, potential ins and outs, and who from the lone army, an army bigger than any constructed uh, since Kurosawa's ran there, look it up, um, and who will have a chance for playing for Spurs next season. Let's start with the managers. And Seb, the reason why uh, Seb uh, Stafford Bloor is here is because he lives and works in Germany. He sees these German people doing their thing. Thanks for joining us, Seb. Uh, full disclosure, are you a Spurs fan? I am, I am. I'm going to admit to it, ah, yes. Ah, well, well, good. No, that's good. That means you've got skin in this game. I mean, let's start with the person who has been the mild favourite ever since he um, didn't land the Chelsea job, uh, Julian Nagelsmann. I'm going to ask you a big question. I'm sure the lads will have others uh, more detailed. Obviously, we saw Richard Keyes on on television the other day saying that Chelsea um, should appoint Lampard rather than Nagelsmann because he can't see 
how one has got any more qualifications than the other. What are Julian Nagelman's qualifications that people always have him down now as the next big thing in, in club management? Yeah, so I, I think actually quite a lot of his value gets lost in the profile around his age. See, Julian Nagelsmann hit the mainstream when he took over at Hoffenheim when he was just 28 years old. And from that point on, he's kind of, he's bracketed as this sort of um, next next big thing, next Guardiola, next, next, uh, next Mourinho. What actually hides under that umbrella is the fact that if you look back at Nagelsmann's time at Hoffenheim, you see a very tactically diverse coach. You see someone who was able to uh, command a great deal of respect amongst a group of professionals, despite having no real playing career to speak of. Um, and he was able to be situationally very, very smart. So he's able to transition Hoffenheim from being being a threat from relegation to um, two successive top four finishes within the space of a year. It was an amazingly impressive accomplishment. And I suppose within that, the sort of the other themes are attractive football, ambitious football, uh, an ability to progress young players. And I think if you place that into the context of what Tottenham have been over the last couple of years, which is pretty dour, pretty difficult to watch, pretty um, pretty attritional on the senses, then that makes quite an appealing argument. There are downsides. I think we're probably going to get to those in a minute. Seb, something that is a big concern for fans or has been a big issue with Spurs managers is the extent to which uh, the manager wants to be at the club. It was certainly one of the things that Conte was held against him, the sense that you know, it, he made it pretty clear he thought it was a bit of a step down and that he was almost doing Spurs a favour. Where would Nagelsmann sit on that spectrum? Obviously, he's young, as, as we talked about, but he is a very, an experienced Champions League manager. Where, where do you see him there? Yeah, I don't see him at that sort of Conte Mourinho level, Charlie, where the almost resentment at having to manage Spurs was pretty palpable from day one. I think with Nagelsmann, the concern is Bayern Munich did not go well. It's been a pretty public dressing down, quite a few breezes to the ego. And so there's the temptation to think that Spurs becomes his his do-over, his step to reclaiming the level of the game where he thinks he belongs. In reality, though, you wonder whether, given the focus that Nagelsmann suffered at Bayern Munich, and remember, Bayern Munich, in terms of the German media, if you were to combine the media focus in England on Manchester United, Arsenal, Chelsea, Spurs, Liverpool into one. That's kind of what you would get in Bayern Munich. It's total. Nobody else exists. It's just um, if you read the front page of uh, the back pages of Build every day, for instance, it's very rare that you see any other club other than Bayern Munich even mentioned um, above the fold. So for Nagelsmann, perhaps there's a, a case for saying on the basis that he doesn't possibly he doesn't thrive on the attention in the way that Mourinho does. He doesn't like the theatre of press conferences and the technical area in the same way that someone like Conte has done. It might even be a little bit of a relief. Like I, I, I thought actually when he when he was dismissed by Bayern Munich, the best place for him was a desert island with you know a, a stack of Lee Child novels possibly because it looks exhausting managing Bayern Munich in the same way that uh, coaching Barcelona might do. So, also I wonder whether and the difference between them maybe is that you feel like Mourinho's best days. Okay, this is an argument for a different time, but are ten years ago possibly. Conte's best, the best period of his career is behind him, probably. Nagelsmann, I don't think Nagelsmann will be coaching in his 60s because that's an awfully long time, but he has so much road ahead of him that actually developing a project at Spurs, doing something over maybe a three, four, five year period, it doesn't become a race for him to finish and then get to Real Madrid. And that's always the sense that I got from Conte and uh, probably Mourinho too, is that 
let's do this. Let's hope it goes well. And let's hope it goes well for long enough that I can convince Florentina Perez to give me a job. And Nagelsmann, to be concise, I don't think Nagelsmann's in a rush to get back to the Bayern Munich level. So I, I, I'm not as fearful. And I I think that with, with the resources that are at least um, the equal of what he had at Bayern Munich in terms of training ground and stadium, I know we all get bored of talking about infrastructure at Spurs and me too, but it's relevant. Um, Nagelsmann always looked a little bit more comfortable at the RB Leipzig level, at the Hoffenheim level, where there was money and there was resources, but he was still an underdog, which is kind of commentary on what Bayern Munich are in Germany, but still the case. And I, I feel like that's a better, better fit for his personality too. And, and um, the slight sort of, there's a raginess to him occasionally and a, a sort of um, a slight anger. And I, I feel like that's an energy that he could, um, that could work at Spurs. So have you touched a bit on uh, the way he developed players? And I guess that was more of a thing at Hoffenheim and Leipzig than Bayern, right? I, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there weren't like loads of players that he brought through. And I know it's not really that that long, realistically, but there weren't loads of players he brought through there, were there? No. And the big miss, James, is Ryan Gravenberch, um, because obviously he came from Ajax and he was the, the great hope of the Bayern midfield. And he, he may well still be, but um, that was one of the things used against him. Um, I think that's slightly... It's, it's, it's a valid criticism, absolutely. But at the same time, I feel like it's a situational one because if you look at his record at those two previous clubs and you see what he did with, I don't know, um, players like Christopher Nkunku, Adaya Meccano, um, Canate, the centre-back is now at Liverpool, Danny Olmo. Um, these are like, it's a fairly consistent record of being able to kind of, um, you know, channel young players. So another thing, just to add to, to, to his record is, He's a he's a he's a great recoverer of lost ability. So what one of his specialties is being able to take a player who perhaps has not necessarily underperformed but underwhelmed elsewhere and become a really really good player. Like um, I know we're going to talk about Javi Alonso and one of the players at Leverkusen at the moment is uh, Demirbay, and he was a real burnout at Hasfal um, in the city where I live, and you know reclaimed his career at Hoffenheim under um, under uh, Julian Nagelsmann. And has gone on to be one of probably the, the, the best creative midfielders in Germany over a long period of time. And so if you Jack have this hope now. for Ndombele exactly. left. Exactly. Ndombele, Lo Celso. I, I, I'm not going right anywhere club. near that. No. Bring me on. They're all coming back. They're yeah. all coming back. I think what you've got is from a man management perspective, and this was echoed by some of the people that spoke out, some of the players who spoke out after he left Bayern Munich. Jose Kimmich um, was very positive about his kind of one-to-one coaching. Um that, that he'd experienced on Nogsman. So what you have is a guy that isn't just a specialist with young players in the way that someone like Brendan Rodgers is, um, doesn't just um, look to revive aging, sagging careers. Um, I can't think of an immediate example for that, but you've got both. And that, that's quite interesting. And actually, if you if you look at squ- uh, Tottenham's squad profile, very interesting in that context too. What about the, the you, you sort of mentioned it in passing, but what about the kind of combustibility levels? I mean, that uh, ju- just thinking that... <laughs> And whether rightly or wrongly, I think what a lot of fans want is the anti-Conte. But Nagelsmann, certainly with the, the, the way Conte, things... yeah. Contra Conte, yeah. Contra Conte, yeah. The way things ended at Bayern, as you touched on, was, you know, it was a bit bruising for him. But do, do you think he would be able to work within the Spurs structure such as it is and, and, and manage the egos of the players? I don't know what the Spurs structure is. Forgive me, like I, I have no... <laughs> I, I don't know that there is Do, one. Does anyone? No. I mean, it's just a a club with employees. I don't know if there's an idea there. But what I'll say is that um, I don't... Nagelsmann's combustibility, um, 
he's angry on the touchline and he had a few ugly moments at, at Munich where I think particularly of a, the loss to Gladbach where he made some fairly um, petulant remarks about the refereeing. And Bayern Munich is not the kind of club where you do that. Like there's an expectation that you behave yourself in a certain way. Call that pompous if you like, maybe, but that is the expectation nonetheless. Um, and there were some, yeah, there were, there were some moments of immaturity. Concerns about the, the Spurs structure aside, I wonder about the media focus of the Premier League as a whole and how much um, everyone seems to enjoy the theatre of it and how much, well, we talked a little bit off air about, you know, um, you know the drama and the theatre and the cartoonishness that, that comes along. You wonder about his, um, about what happens to someone like Nagelsmann in that environment, uh, if he's prodded, if he's if he's encouraged to give um, uh, derogatory opinions about refereeing standards or opposition, I don't know to to be truthful. The idea that he has stopped Munich uh, didn't bring through young players, um, I think, is an illusion because um, Gravenberg went to the wrong club. He, Gravenberg went to a club where where Joshua Kimmich and uh, Ilian Goretzka are the most established midfield two in European football, away from Modric and Kroos. How was he ever going to break into that team? Those two have to play for Bayern Munich to work. Um, let me ask you the final question on him because we've got so much to get through if, I'm, if I might, might jump across Charlie and, and James here. When we see, and I don't know where these, these things come from, and I hope they're not the uh, ravings of, of, of journalistic imagination, when we see things like, oh, he wants to know who the director of football is, he wants to know this, he wants to know that, just for the sake of Spurs fans, Seb, do you get any impression that at the end of this, he he he's not going to come to Spurs. He's going to find an excuse not to come to Tottenham Hotspur. I'm privy to no inside information at all, Danny. I would be surprised just on the basis of the sporting director situation. You've got to remember that Julian Nagelsmann has never worked not under a sporting director because that's the norm under Germany. That is the structure. And and uh, English clubs who resist this or, or who... Um, uh, what's the right way to put it, uh, undervalue the importance of structure and alignment, they're the outliers. It's not the other way around. And so for someone who's grown up with certain areas of um, club management as somebody else's responsibility or purview, it's going to be very weird. And also, if you were taking a job, put it in real world terms, right? So if you were taking a job and you didn't know who your boss was going to be, do you take it? Like, if you didn't know who, who your boss was going to be or what that person, even in the abstract, stood what for. What are the hours, Seb? <laughs> what are the hours? What are my responsibilities? What do you want me to do? Like, which 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 parts of my skill set do you value? Not are you going to sign a left-footed centre back? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and I think something we we underestimate in this, or completely uh, misunderstand in this country, because old-fashioned managers often have resisted that new structure. We, yeah, we kind of think of. Um, we we think of managers like wanting lots of freedom, which in some ways they do. But a lot of managers are like, I don't want to be obsessing over transfer targets. You sort that out. I'll focus on the coaching. That that's such a different thing um, in different footballing cultures, and that's very much the footballing culture that Nagelsmann's coming from. So you know, if you're, he's not going to be like, oh great, no director of football, I can do what I want. He's going to be thinking, I need a structure here. I need someone who can do that, so I can focus on the coaching. It might be something to revisit when we talk about Javi Alonso, because I, I, I spent time with Leverkusen's sporting director, Simon Rolfs, um, back in the autumn. And that's a really good example of the value of that role in concert with an inexperienced coach who has plenty of ideas and ability and standing within the game, but doesn't necessarily want the kind of the burden of having to manage this enormous transfer and scouting network that can that can consume so much time and energy. And it's 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 an absolutely it, it's it's fundamental. And I, I think if you've grown up in Germany as a coach, 
the idea of operating without it is alien or even in, existing with this, in this vacuum where, okay, so Scott Munn's coming in, don't really know what his job is, but it's senior, not sure what, you know, who knows, right? Daniel Levy, does he make football decisions anymore? Don't know. Um, what what does what is my what do, what do my bosses stand for from in a uh, from a technical perspective? Don't know. Like it, these are it's it's too much of a vacuum for someone like Nagelsmann. I would have thought. I'm guessing. Yeah, and look, there's a whole other podcast we made about what football managers want from directors of football. Sometimes I think they want a lot of power and no responsibility. Let's move then um, uh, from Julian Nagelsmann, who. Um, has got three or four years under his belt to the next candidate uh, living and working in Germany, um, who's got less than two, really. Um, you mentioned him already, Xavi Alonso, who's come out of left field here, really. But Bayer Leverkusen, to give you the background, listeners, um, were in the relegation zone in um, the Bundesliga when he took over earlier this season. Um, and now just falling short, I would think it's fair to say, Seb, of a European place, but have played some very decent stuff. What have you made of Xabi Alonso, and the obvious question, is it far too early for him to be talking about going to the Premier League? Okay, so in order, um, I've been really impressed because Leverkusen was a little bit of a mess back in the autumn. There was some real difficulties and obviously Siani got sacked, so um, you don't get a job when a job is a good one to take. I think probably one of the the biggest obstacles uh, Alonso has faced since he, he arrived is that he hasn't had um, a fully squ- fully fit squad available to him throughout the season. So when you think of Leverkusen, you probably think of Patrick Schick and Florian Wirtz, and uh, neither has been available for um, the, the entirety of the campaign. Uh, Patrick Schick's injuries, Florian Wirtz has only just come back from a really, really serious injury, and... Alonso has been able to navigate his way around these problems, use different players in different situations. In you know, it's a, something we said about Nagelsmann. He's been able to kind of marshal the um, uh, the nascent sort of uh, periods of of a young player's career really, really well. And all of a sudden, without anyone really noticing, Leverkusen has shot up the table. They've I think there are they're twelve or thirteen games unbeaten. They haven't lost since February, and a lot of that has been done without their very best players. Um, and so the kind of the sort of important notes, I guess you'd say that Alonso plays predominantly out of a 3-4-3 or when Verts came back, it became a little bit of a 3-4-1-2 or 3-4-2-1. So there's a little bit of flexibility there. Um, he, uh, his wing backs have been absolutely sensational. Jeremy Fringpong, who used to play for Celtic, I'm sure people brilliant. remember, they'll absolutely probably recognise him. He's been absolutely excellent. The, the floor is in his game um, and uh, there are some issues there, but he's um, really developed as a player. Pierre Hancapi, I know, is linked to Spurs back in January, which was a little bit fanciful for the figures um, mentioned. Nowhere near what he's he's worth to Leverkusen um, and has now signed a new contract. But good example of, I remember speaking to Simon Rolfs about Hancapi, who they, they scouted at the Copa America and they said, we saw him and he was so good. He was he was kind of on their sort of the long range scouting list, right? It's someone they might look at in six months, a year's time. And they said, well, we, we need to take him now because uh, the more he plays, the more other people watch him, the more he's going to be unavailable to, to clubs like, like us who, who don't have the sort of the financial pull of the, you know, the big beasts in Europe. Uh, Hinkabi came in and, and um, has quickly evolved into one of the best left-sided centre-backs in a sort of back three and can occasionally play as a sort of wing-back, full-back in, in Europe. And a lot of this is to do with Alonso, who I don't know what his reputation is. I don't know whether I don't know what people think of him in Germany because it still feels a little bit like he's he's still Javi Alonso, the the number six, 
the legendary player, like, you know, the distributor, the Bayern Munich player, like he's a legendary player and, and rightly so. And also, given what I said earlier about the kind of the media focus on Bayern Munich, things that happen at Leverkusen, which is an industrial town, um, which isn't a very big place and where it's a, it's a very, very strange place and, and football is not necessarily, it, it's not the sexiest sell is what I'm trying to say, the, the Leverkusen story. It's somewhere you, you go as a coach or a player and you're not operating in a vacuum, but it's a relatively quiet place. There's not a lot of pressure or attention or analysis like Alonso's tactics week by week are not being picked through by an army of bloggers, for instance. Um, so it's been quite a good place for him to develop. But nevertheless, what started as quite a quite a stodgy uh, Leverkusen before the World Cup has evolved into something really, really attractive to watch. And they're scoring goals and um, they're through to the semi-final of the Europa League. And uh, if the season was a month longer, you would say they might edge into the Champions League spots. So it's been super impressive. How much do you think his um, the fact that he is this legendary player, how much of a difference do you think that would make to his standing? Because he is young, but his standing among the Spurs players who, you know, as we're so often told, are well, or according to Conte anyway, are unmanageable. Um, but I just wonder how someone with him, you know, coming in, uh, such a iconic player, Champions League winner, how much of a difference that would make? It's a really good question, Charlie. I, it's hard to say because I, I'm not really sure what I think of that Spurs playing group. Uh, there aren't many say positive more. things I say Say more, Seb, go on. <laughs> well, well, I, I just, and this is my opinion, doesn't represent anybody at the athletic or anybody on this podcast other than me but what i think the hell's he gonna say what the hell <laughs> is he gonna say <laughs> well quite a few of them are just losers right like not all of them but some of them all right antonio like it's kind of <laughs> if you if you give there's a certain type of professional footballer danny that if you give them an excuse not to perform and you give them a, a reason why um if you give them the reason to hide behind something be it a coach or a chairman, or a director of football, or a managing director of football, whatever, whatever the job titles, they'll take it. That doesn't involve everybody at Spurs because there's there's a, a little core of players who, you know, um, professionally are impressive in their way, but there are too many of the, of the former at the club. So you wonder, it can go one of two ways with someone like Alonso. He walks in, won everything, right? Played under some of the most impressive coaches in the modern game at the biggest clubs under the biggest media scrutiny. You wonder whether someone like Alonso walks into Spurs and he's just appalled by what he finds. Like the idea of sort of the lack of self-starters, the lack of kind of personal accountability, that the sort of, you know, at the same time, you could make the argument that a lot of players would gravitate towards him. You'd think someone like Harry Kane would admire someone like um, Jabby Alonso. Son Heung-min would probably be the same. But it's not a very long list, is but it? But they're already the um, self-starters, aren't they? By and yeah, large, that's the thing. That's the problem. Yeah. But it's, 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 it's really interesting because I don't, I don't agree. I do think there is. I think the right head coach will just will make such a difference to these players. I, I just don't believe that Spurs have, you know, left no stone unturned and they've gone for every different type of manager and nothing's worked. Like they've broadly gone for pretty similar managers and the players haven't found them inspiring. I, I really believe there is someone out there who who would inspire them. I, I don't disagree. I just don't know who that is. I, I think that if you. I think I think the, the the tragedy with Spurs at the moment, right, is that this isn't why I've come on. I, I understand that. No, no, like, you, no, no. You've it's started. Like, um, it's called the players' losers. You're on a roll now. Don't stop now. I I don't think like Spurs are a kind of a major surgery on the pitch situation. I think there are above the pitch all sorts of things, like all sorts of um, issues to to resolve. I think if you brought the right players in, if you brought a you know um, you know a, a, an adult defender, right. 
to play the 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 middle centre back role. If you brought in a proper left sided centre back, if you um, Destiny from Udinese is supposed to be a very very good player. That's really interesting. If you if you found someone who could pass a football, that'd be great. That'd be really nice. That'd be lovely. Um, Sounds you know, like you're the man, you're the man for the job, Seb. So. My point being is that you, you don't need a I lot of... a flicker of a laugh there. You notice that? You, you don't, <laughs> I have no sense of humour left on this topic whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not a big job, but like mentally, God, there's something so wrong. Like some of the things I've seen recently are just shameful. Um, so you just wonder, with someone like Alonso, given what his career stood for, to bring it back around, it, it's, a, it's a coin flip as to how that might go. I don't necessarily, I don't disagree with Charlie. I just wonder whether, you know, that's the right person to inspire that sort of, um, that kind of uh, positive clamoring, I guess. My other worry about Alonso would be if he has aspirations to be Liverpool manager at some stage, whether going to Tottenham would be like a kind of awkward stepping stone in terms of the difference between Leverkusen and, and Liverpool, because it's going to be a difficult job, whoever takes it. And there's only there's a very specific level of of good performance in that job to get you to Liverpool, I think, because you can get to a point where you've gone, it's gone so well that you're not going to then go to Liverpool because Liverpool are presumably going to be behind, and it just feels to me like it's not a stepping stone between. It's probably slightly too far along. I just don't see, and you know, and Daniel Levy would obviously make it difficult if you wanted to leave under contract and you could probably say I know we're going to talk about bits and company a bit later on uh, you could probably say the same things about him and Manchester City it just feels like the level that Tottenham are at may make it difficult to kind of be the transition between I, like I, I hear this but he's not yet part of that super elite group uh, super elite group of managers uh, James who now swirl around the top half dozen Champions League clubs um, fully I mean Conte's one of them isn't he um, fully assured of their, of their own brilliance and uh, getting those gigs. Because only one person can manage Liverpool at a time. Only one person can manage Real Madrid at a time. Only one person can manage Manchester City at a time. So I, I wouldn't worry. I'm not so, so worried about that. What worries me, and it's a small W, is that, and it's because essentially it's a positive. Xavi Alonso has worked under, you could argue, the best coaches um, in, the, in the last 20 years of the game. He's worked... Uh, under Pep Guardiola, he's worked under Ancelotti, he's worked under Mourinho. Um, it's just a question of which one of those he's going to choose as his kind of, uh, uh, as his role model, his mentor. I'd definitely be very happy if it was Guardiola, less so if it was Mourinho. Um, a third name for you, Seb, if I may. This one seems to have come, and I never quite got it, except that I know, we know from watching him in the last couple of years, Frankfurt plays some decent football. Oliver Glasner, has currently got Eintracht ninth in the Bundesliga um, through to the final of the, the German Cup. But he's also being talked about as being let go at the end of the season. Would he be a good fit for Spurs? Is that a likely thing to happen? Uh, it's a tricky one. Glasner, I think like the most impressive part of Glasner's CV is probably his work at Wolfsburg when you turn them into a Champions League side. I'm not sold on him. I feel like, and this is a little bit of a clumsy comparison, there's a bit of the Harry Redknapp about him in the sense that his football's attractive and you'd enjoy it, but there are flaws. And I feel like when I sit down to to watch Eintracht, not necessarily Europe, because they 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 sort of they proved last season they're a good European team and, and they did ever so well to win to win the Europa League. I never know what I'm gonna watch on a Saturday with Eintracht. Like you might watch some really attractive football at the same time, like you'll see some horrible defensive flaws. And it feels to me like um not in the boring sense, but 
as a Spurs fan, I want a little bit more stability. Um, I want to see attractive football, definitely. But I want, I don't want to have to compromise. I feel like I've been doing quite a lot of compromising over the last few years. Don't want to do any more But should you say it's a bit like Harry Redknapp? Both James and I beamed a wide smile. <laughs> oh, good. We're going to see some football then, are we? Is it possible that's the difference between me and you and Seth? <laughs> we're, we're satisfied with, with Harry Redknapp, 4-4-2, people <laughs> running about yeah, a bit. Yeah, running about a bit. Seth's maybe a bit more of a, a developer. let me also add a thing on Glasner, right? So Eintracht, um, Eintracht's recruitment's really good, I feel. Like, they're the club that takes Jesper Lindstrom, for instance, and turns him into a really, really good player. They're the one that takes... The, the free transfer gamble on Randall Kalomuani, and he turns out to be probably an 80 to 100 million euro player. Spurs not that club. Spurs' recruitment, not that good at the moment. Um, I'm, you know, not, not to disparage anybody in that department, but look at what you've bought. It's not great. Um, you know, so Glasner, again, always worked under a director of football, always worked with a club who have a very, very well-defined philosophy. Like Eintracht are that side who... Um, develop younger players and will continue to do that after Oliver Glasner has gone. So the manager role there is a slot of a certain definition that you drop someone into. Yeah, you're not a, you are not like, you know, when you you unblock a plug and you, you, you it's that foamy stuff that goes down and it, you know, and it clears everything out. Well, like that feels to me like a, like sort of Daniel Levy's uh, idea of a, of a football coach in that you do that and then everything's solved because that's the foam just takes it takes whatever space is available to it Glasson's not that guy Seb it's been an absolute joy thank you very very much indeed not a lot of Spurs related stuff it's been a pleasure lately so you know. <laughs> well this podcast always is so uh, thank you very much indeed and I know you'll be welcome back when they appoint a further German that we've never heard of um, and you'll be able to come back mm. and tell us all about them <laughs> Thanks very much indeed. Jürgen Klinsmann said. What do we think of him? <laughs> well, we know him. He's our mate, isn't he? So that's not a problem. True, yeah. He uh, would, he back would on do the a pod, lot of talking yeah. have a lot of opinions, I would imagine. Yes. <laughs> now let's move across the border from Germany to Holland in our search for the next potential Spurs manager. Uh, to help us do that, we've enlisted the help of another expert. First up, uh, Michel Jungsma. We caught up with Michel earlier to find out more about the Feyenoord manager, Arne Slot. Uh, hi, Michel. Um, thanks for joining us here on The View from the Lane. Uh, to begin, can I just ask, for those uh, uninitiated with the Eredivisie, how impressive is it that Slot and his Feyenoord team have hunted down and defeated Ajax to win the league this season? It's really hard to overstate uh, Arne Slot's influence. Uh, when you look at the competition, uh, title uh, title holders Ajax, they've lost a few starters. They lost their star coach, obviously, uh, and things just haven't really worked out this season. The same kind of goes for PSV with, with Roger Smith departing. Ruud van Nistelrooy is a, is a is a fairly fresh new coach, uh, and they've lost a few few important players as well, including Cody Gakpo and Noni Madueke this winter. Um, but that shouldn't really take anything away from how well Slot and Feyenoord have done because they've lost eight of their uh, 13 outfield players with the most minutes, including six of the top eight. All four players with 15-plus goals left, all three players with 10-plus assists left, and they had a good season last season, finishing third and reaching a Conference League final. Uh, but they managed to very much improve on that with, with the semifinals in the Cup, quarterfinals in the Europa League, where they... They made it really tough for Mourinho's Roma to 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 pull through on in overtime, extra time. 
and now they're ending up as title winners, uh, which is a tough feat with final regardless. But when you consider how much uh, they had to replace in terms of players, it's, it's, it's an incredible achievement. Okay, thanks for that. What about Slot's style of play? What system does he usually like to use? Uh, the accents have differed, but Arne Slot has so far favoured a 4-3-3 uh, with inverted wingers throughout his career. Uh, he likes to attack, but is very keen at using the moments of transitions to make a mark, pressing aggressively but with intent, trying to force high turnovers and being very successful with it. Um, in possession, Slot asks quite a lot from his defenders, as they have to be quite comfortable to dribble into midfield, uh, create extra man there. Um, and he is quite handy in encouraging his team to find space in the center of the pitch, which involves his center, central midfielders taking turns in using the space and the wing intel- intelligently, um, resulting in plenty of chances from cutbacks, for example. Uh, and despite his team being really well drilled, uh, he still trusts his players uh, to use their creativity ch- to change the game. And uh, none embody that better than Finders captain Arkham Kokchu, who has really lived up to, to his potential uh, since Arne Slot became manager. He's really at the soul of everything. He's being their, their, their main conductor, their main creator. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite impressive to see what he gets out of individuals uh, within a, a certain well, restraint system that uh, does involve quite a bit of pressing and um, defensive work. I mean, another thing as well that um, the Spurs fans will probably want to know, what about Arna Slot's attitude towards giving opportunities to young players? But part of managing in the Eredivisie is managing young players, as it's very much a, a pool of talent uh, over here. Uh, so the oldest Feyenoord starting eleven in the league was barely 25 this season, uh, which is younger than all but a handful of teams have done in the Premier League so far, I think. Uh, so that kind of tells you that you have to be good with youth players in general. Uh, but in general, he seems quite happy to give players a chance whenever he thinks they're good enough uh, to have an impact. And this 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 past summer, he had a couple of veterans that he let leave because uh, he saw more future in the younger players, um, despite them having played quite a few minutes. Um, and this season, he's basically done the same in terms of, of just giving young players a chance. Um, Tyrell Malasia uh, went to Manchester United as, as a left-back, so they needed someone there. Uh, Marcus Lopez was signed um, to make an impact there uh, from the from the MLS, uh, but instead he turned to Quilinchi Hartman uh, from the Youth Academy, and he's been brilliant there. I think he's got his first call-up for the Dutch national team as well. Um, and in midfield, he's done a similar thing with Mats Viefer, who only last season played in the in the second tier, and is now actually a, a Dutch international as well um, in midfield, playing a few minutes here and there. So like he he likes to give give young players a chance, and it's all about trust uh, with him. If if you if you do what he wants you to do, not so much what he tells you to do, but what he wants you to do, then he'll give you a chance. All of this is inc- incredibly positive, Mikhail. Thank you very much indeed. Do you have any reservations? over how Slot might adapt to Premier League football. I think I had more reservations when the Ten Hag moved over, and that's not so much about the football itself, but just in terms of, of how to conduct yourself in, a, in an international environment. Um, Ten Hag was, uh, his English was, uh, was slightly poorer, and uh, he's quite a bit more direct. And Arne Slot, he's just a very, very intelligent, well-bespoke guy who had a decent career as a, as a as an intelligent but somewhat limited midfielder, and he just now seems hell bent on becoming the best manager he can be, and he just really works hard for it. He studies everything that he can. He studies uh, other other themes in, in his free time, 
Um, and that's going to be just a, a really big strength uh, moving forward. And um, he knows how to present himself and he might come across as a bit too nice, but he knows what he wants and he's able to instill that into a squad quite quickly. Um, and as that, he was on course and getting the club their only top two finish in the last 15 years. And currently he's winning fire at only their second title this century. So he's made a, a real impact there, uh, which is comparable to uh, the previously mentioned Eriksen Haag in the Eredivisie. And I would just not be surprised to see him have similar success as well. Yeah, thank you very much there. That, a really interesting overview there of a manager who, let's be honest, most of us haven't got a detailed knowledge of. So all the more thank you, as always, uh, to, to Mihail uh, Jongsma, Dutch expert there, just giving us a flavour of what might happen if it's Slot who ends up in the Spurs technical area. What's to make of that, Charlie? It does sound like he's done an extremely impressive job. Um, and given one of the priorities that Spurs will be a rebuild of sorts, I mean, hopefully in a slightly different way that it's not you know, selling all the best players. But even so, there's been a huge amount of churn. Uh, and I think we'll talk about the state of Spurs' squad uh, piece I've been write- I was writing this week. So, yeah, I mean, very, very impressive and, yeah, clearly got a lot of momentum and you suspect to be one of those coaches we hear a lot about uh, in the next few years. My reservation, yeah. I, I mean, and this might sound daft on the basis of what Ten Hag has done at United this season. And my reservation now is probably sort of similar to what I have Ten Hag and it's just you just don't know, what, and this is a bit of a cliche, you just don't know what you're going to get with people that come out of that league. Sometimes, Entire it's, Kesman, sometimes it's absolutely amazing, sometimes it just doesn't work. Uh, and obviously Ten Hag had had a far bigger body of work at Ajax by the time he came to the Premier Very League. Very fair. Uh, that, I mean, and that doesn't really actually mean anything in reality because either he's good or he's not. Ten Hag, you could argue, had a head start though with the kind of squad that uh, Ajax have in comparison to Feyenoord. But I, I take your point entirely. You don't know whether you're going to get Vincent Janssen or Ruth Van Nistelrooy, do you, when they come out of the Eredivisie? Um, because, That's a very nice way of putting it. Well, you. it's a beautiful league. It's a beautiful Kesman's league. Kesman's always my go-to. Oh, Matai Kesman, uh, yeah. Yeah, Matai <laughs> Kesman, the, the Chelsea flop. Yeah, well, um, so that, that was uh, Arna Slot. And we're going to hear, finally, in this first half of the podcast, we're going to go... To Burnley, uh, where Vincent Company has guided the Clarets to an incredible championship title and promotion to the Premier League. The Athletics Burnley writer Andy Jones has had this to say on the Spurs-linked Manchester City legend Vincent Company. If we rewind back to, to the summer and, and company's appointment, there was still some uncertainty around it because there were mixed reviews about how well he'd done at Anderlecht. And of course, even though he obviously knows English football, he, he admitted himself that he, he was going to be learning about the, the championship on, on the job. And, and not only that, having to gel um, a completely new squad and implement a completely new new style of play in a shortened pre-season. So there was doubts about, about how well it would go. But the proof is in the pudding, really. Um, you know, 16 new faces... You know, the, the complete opposite in terms of style compared to, to Sean Dyche. And, you know, they, they've, they've coasted to, to the league title, really. Um, they've been the best the best team in the division. And, and, and that has largely been down to, to sort of the, the early work the company and, and his coaching staff put in. You know, he's got his two key core values, are, are togetherness and, and hard work. And then from that, the, the detail and um, 
you know, the, what what players have, have described him as and, and, and staff as sort of the most intense man they've, they've ever worked with, but in a really good way. You know, he's he's the magic about the place. He sees things that others don't. Um, and, and a lot of that has come from, from his work uh, under Pep Guardiola. Sort of watching how he coached, watching or you know, listening and learning about how he how he thinks about the game and and you can see the similarities in, in terms of Burnley's style of play. You know, they've they've moved to that inverted fullback um system that, that Pep Guardiola and Michael Arteta are another disciple, if you like, of, of the Man City manager. He, they've moved to that system and but the style of play has just been completely different from that direct defensive approach under Dice. It's been free flowing, you know, getting as many players forward as possible, that inverted fullback um system and trying to have as much possession as possible, but you know, look, essentially, you know, company's philosophy is to try and score a goal from every situation on the pitch, whether that be from an opposition throw in or from their own goal kick. And that and that's shone through and, and that's why Bernie have been have been so successful. His temperament as a manager, you know, in press conferences he's he's very thoughtful, very detailed in the way he thinks about, you know, his answers and the way he answers questions and you can see when you get him on a, a tactics question, for example, the detail and the depth he'll go into. Um, to explain his thinking and that that's the same in, in sort of every meeting he has with the players um if he needs to be hard he will be and um, there's been a, not not often this season because Burnley have been so good but there has been games uh, they were two 0 down at Sunderland uh, and he was he was firm with his team talk at half time and he came out and, and won 4-2 and there's there's clips there's a clip going that you can easily find on social media of his time at Anderlecht where he, he certainly lets the players know um that there's another side to him from that calm that calm presence he usually has um, but he's he's got that aura, he's got that respect so that, you know, when he's walked into a room and, and players will, will listen to him. And I think in terms of a fifth for Spurs, it, it's interesting because I think, you know, company he knows the Premier League inside out. He's a serial winner. He knows how to deal, you know, with egos, large egos, because while he may not have managed, um, you know, at the top level yet, he's he was captain. So he sat to manage a dressing room. He, he knows how to deal with, with players who, who will have come to him who may, might not be happy. And I think all of the... You know the sort of intangibles of a manager suggest that he's going to be an elite manager through his you know his work ethic his, his 12 to 14 hour days that he puts in the level of detail uh, as, as mentioned it before but players sort of say that when they're watching analysis sessions back they'll spot things and he'll spot five or six others that no one else has seen and that dedication that drive and that that ability to improve players because you know he took a lot of gambles on, on Burnley uh, some of Burnley signings and and a lot of them have um, pretty much all of them have improved as the season's gone on. So th there's that element, and, he, and, and you can see, even in the short space of time, he knows how to build a team and get the team built. You know, playing in the way he wants and in his, you know, his image. So you know, there's a lot of of good things that suggest he's going to continue to rise up the ladder. So whether the question is whether it's it's too early, um, I guess at this point, given he's he had no he has no experience in the Premier League as a manager, but I guess we'll only find out if he takes that leap or. He, uh, he sees how, how he gets on with Burnley next season um, as, as they return to the Premier League. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, 
everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Welcome back to The View from the Lane. I'm Danny Kelly. Charlie Eccleshaw and James Moore are with me as well. Deep breath after all that um, investigation, deep dive, as my colleagues would say, into who might be the next Spurs manager. Those of you who are members of the Spurs Premium Club um, will have received a fantastic um, notification, either in the post or by email in the last 24 hours. And we've got hold of one here. It comes with a gold embossed cockerel at the top. The club crest in gold, if you don't mind. How lovely. Dear Premium Member, we look forward to welcoming you to our Premier League fixture against Crystal Palace on Saturday 6th of May, kickoff 3pm. As you will be aware, King Charles III's coronation will be taking place on the same day. To mark this historic occasion, the stadium will be open, uh, opening at an earlier time of 11am to offer fans the opportunity to watch the coronation on our TV screens throughout the stadium. Please be advised that the rest of the day's schedule will remain the same. Yada, yada. Kind regards, Tottenham Hotspur. The club has its own personality and speaking voice. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't even come from one of the myriad of commercial people whose names occasionally appear in Charlie's pieces. Or just Daniel. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, statement yeah, the other way. Coy's yeah. Daniel. Yeah, well, Danny. I'll ask you first, James, will you be pledging out loud allegiance to the king and all his um, successors? I don't imagine so. I imagine I'll be uh, sort of cursing him. I've got to travel through London. Yeah. Uh, on the day of the coronation, um, and I've seen the tweet from the Metropolitan Police saying anyone who uh, objects is going to get whacked with a baton. Disgusting, uh, absolutely pa- disgraceful. Para- paraphrasing a little bit, but not, but not actually that much. Um, yeah, so I'm going to have a horrible journey across London. I'm guessing it's going to be incredibly busy through central London. I imagine I'll be on the tube or something at twelve. So no, it's mad that the game is being played on that day. I think. In London, I mean, yes. I, I literally in don't London, care about yeah. it, but uh, yeah, the idea that, that a Premier League game with sixty thousand people is being played. Charlie, um, I, will you will you be uh, loudly proclaiming your uh, allegiance to the king? <laughs> I won't. Uh, I'm trying to think when not, I'll, not get there. I'll get there. I'll get. Yeah, I'll get to the stadium well, about one thirty. Yeah, I don't think I'll be there at that point. Um, so I will be a dignified silence, most probably, when when the national anthem is bellowed out. 
Oh, and in the interest of not appearing to be, you know, a, a sort of um, Rick from the Young Ones, of course I will watch most of it, um, not for the frocks, but for the, for the historical significance of it. Um, luckily, I'm not, I don't live in a country where I'm required to loudly proclaim my allegiance to the king. And if I did... It will be to Ledley King. Let's be truth. This is the king. There's I recognize. The king. There you go. Well, fantastic, fantastic um, time. James, James, James doesn't, doesn't help a podcast. James has just doesn't picked up that podcast, beautiful that navy blue shirt the Spurs occasionally wore with Ledley King's name on the back and number twenty six. And if if the internet allowed such a thing, I would kiss it as well. He just kissed it before he put it back down on the under his desk. I was actually smelling it because it smelled really bad. Oh, I thought you were smelling it because it might have been worn by Ledley King. No, it hasn't. It's not. It's only been won by me, sadly. Right. Let's um, move on to Charlie's written a, a piece today, um, along with Mark Carey in the Athletic. Again, I, you know, I recommend the, the, the couple of credit costs a month to go to the Athletic. I recommend it just for this piece and the graphics as well, um, which talk about the Spurs quad depth. Um, and Charlie, as you pointed out, I mean, you can give me the headlines yourself. What I took from it is that they are massively. Um, over when people come back from the loans, over committed in in central midfield. If you're only going to play two, you're choosing two from six or seven. There, they've got a whole lot of left backs, none of which are entirely suited to either system. Um, and the 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 lack. If Langley goes back to Barcelona, of course Barcelona don't want him back. They want to get his wages off the books. The left side is centre back. What, what what you did the exercise? What did you make of the, what Spurs have got to do in the summer? Well, the thing that re- that I realised whilst doing this piece with Mark's brilliant graphics, as you say, is that they this summer will be the fifth different head coach in five consecutive summers. That is incredible. And added to that will be three different uh, directors of football or head of recruitment or whatever it is. So that's just, that says it all to me. And that's how you end up with a squad that looks like it does, where you've got all these central midfielders. But you know, even the fact they've got so many first team players out on loan is not it's very odd. I mean, I know Chelsea in their really weird way. Absolutely, I've got to make the point. There are clubs who do this. Chelsea and Paris Saint Germain. You end up with with Julian Drexler not going to play any football a couple of years ago. Um, but those two clubs, because of their finances, can afford to do it. Spurs can't afford to have thirty odd players on the books. No, exactly. I mean, they're already when even before they sign anyone. Once all those loan players come back, they're way over the, the maximum squad size for next season. And it's going to be really hard to shift all these players. We've talked about it before. The market is completely screwed because foreign clubs are struggling so much financially. So I just don't know where they sell a bunch of these players to. And I think a lot of them are damaged goods in Premier League terms. But yeah, I mean, they've got all these centre midfielders. They've got all these left backs. They've got three right backs or right wing backs. um, And you, you wouldn't have thought they could go into the season with all of them. I mean, another issue as well is if because they've Conte's played this 3-4-3 system and they gave him the keys um maybe not as much as he would have liked last summer and in january i mean they brought in pedro porro for a deal that will go to 45 million and another piece i'm working on is looking at spurs's defense and the goals they've conceded and porro does not come out of that well i mean i think he's played well in the last few games and clearly offers an attacking threat but i would be very very worried about him in a back four most managers play with the back four and it's going to be really awkward um, and then, you know, guys like Perisic as well, who can't really play as a fullback in a four. It's going to be really awkward uh, making that transition. Um, James, what did, what did you make of um, uh, Charlie's piece and the, and the accompanying graphics, which, as I say, you look at all that mid, all those midfield players and you think, but are, are any of them or any combination of them good enough 
to really make Spurs, you know, better than they are now. Of course, if Basuma gets a proper chance and Benton Kerr comes back from his injury, anything like, I think you've got two excellent players there who we haven't had all this season, really. Yeah, that's true. I mean, actually, the thing that Charlie mentioned in the piece that I hadn't really considered, but it was kind of obvious, was that Benton Kerr is not going to be back till like November. Yeah. Which I know, you know, that is kind of an approximation, but the fact that he's going to miss pre-season and the start of the season... Uh, given how much he's been missed in the last what two and a half months or whatever, however long it's been, uh, that is going to be a pretty big issue for the new manager to deal with. Because I don't imagine Tottenham being Tottenham, there's going to be some kind of short-term <laughs> solution to that. It's just going to be, you know, make do until he returns. So, yeah, it could be sort of an unsettled start to the season in midfield for Spurs next season. Which is, frust- which is a shame for them because they do, they do have good players there yeah, yeah no, I would agree the, I mean I'd say that, that Benton Kerr and Basuma should be like a good two with a kind of proper playmaker ahead of them I mean I think that that should work and Skip and Saar coming through yeah, exactly yeah so it's not you know it's not a complete disaster zone that, that part of the pitch uh, I mean the, the left centre-back thing and I know this is the thing we've talked about for probably the last five windows but they're going to uh, they probably really need to sign two and I, I mean, I don't know whether they're going to want to sign a right-sided one too, or how much faith they're going to have in any of the others, really, given what we've kind of been saying about Romero the last few weeks. So the defence does look like the, the area where the most work is going to need to be done. Thankfully, um, Charlie, you didn't address this in the piece because, of course, I would stop reading it as soon as you got there. You didn't address the issue that so much of this, um, you were able to gloss over the front of the team because they have got some really talented players. But so much of all of this depends on Kane staying, doesn't it? I, I, I've yeah, made very light reference to that because I do think he will stay for next season. That, that's my, I, I'd be surprised if he wasn't there next season. And in, and in that case, you've got Kane, Son, Kulisevsky and Richarlison as a four, which is a, I think that's a very strong core to build around. You're then, that, you're then sort of fitting yeah, around the pa- edges. And Perisic, if he stays, will become the back, should become the backup to Son on the left side there, rather than trying to play a position where in, I'm not sure he's entirely happy. The key is having versatile forwards. And that's why I think Richardson was a really good signing. I know he hasn't shown it this season, but having some... And the fact that him and Son can play anywhere across the front three is really, really useful. And that's the kind of player I'd be looking for them to bring in uh, in the summer to supplement that, if it's not if Dajuma isn't kept on. Well, I mean, are we going to see a load of... I'm addressing both of you with this. I guess you're right to say that continental clubs haven't got the money to buy some of these players. Um, and of course, they're also trying desperately to take advantage of the Premier League needing to get them off the wage bill. I guess we're going to have another massive number of players out on loan next season because you can't see them. It's not like football manager, but the first thing you do when you open up as a new club is you sell 20 of your players. It doesn't work like that in real life, does it? During, during the game on Sunday, I did message Charlie and ask him which which country's league Pedro Porro will win on loan next season. <laughs> that, to be fair, that was early in the game when he, uh, just, despite having kind of been quite heavily involved in the goals conceded, he actually did play very well going forward in the second half and probably with the benefit of hindsight, or maybe not, shouldn't have been substituted. But, yeah, I, I mean, you do worry about that. Uh, but players who play in very specific positions, if they bring in a manager who doesn't play that system, and it's always going to be the problem. Uh, you know they they obviously have this surplus at left wing back left back they got too many right backs too yeah they are probably going to have I would say kind of five or six out on loan again 
I mean, especially those players who are on contracts that were agreed pre-COVID. So you think Lacelso and Dombele, um I, I just wonder what's going to happen there. I mean, Lacelso maybe has more of a chance under a new manager, and obviously it depends who the new manager is. But I wonder if those if those players are basically just loaned until the end of their contracts, and you, you know, so you're almost trying to write that you off. Know, Reguilón will be back. I saw him come on for 15 minutes last night for an Atletico Madrid team that was interestingly, um, with given they got two Spurs players on loan there, are the best team in Spain at the moment. They've been the best team since the World Cup, um, and if the you know if the league had started. At the World Cup, they would be walking away with the Spanish league. But of course, both he and Matt Doherty um, are, are starting off the bench these days. Um, and but he'll be back at Spurs. I, I I haven't given up completely on 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 Reguilón, and I think Pedro Porro to use. He has so many obvious upsides: his engine, his physical power, um, the fact that he likes to hit the ball very hard when he's shooting and things like that. There's so much going for him as a footballer um, that I think a good coach will find a way to accommodate him, whether it's wing-back, whether you teach him to play full-back, whether you end up playing him on the right side, because we're going to start seeing more teams playing 4-4-2 again. I start to see seeds of it. Now, when teams go behind, this is what they go back to. Charlie's piece on how Spurs might or might not have to rebuild their slightly bloated and unbalanced squad, lots of people have got those, is also uh, added to in The Athletic by Jack's piece on following the example set by Napoli, when Sp- what Spalletti has done there to turn around um, you know, a, an incredible uh, Scudetto victory for the uh, N- Naples team without necessarily having to appoint one of the elite managers, although I think he's a pretty brilliant coach myself's blessed they're both um in the athletic and if you're not already an athletic subscriber just two more reasons why you should be because then you can read all of this incredible spurs coverage plus a mountain of other stuff as well um let me just clear the formula all you want to do is go to the athletic.com forward slash spurs pod and sign up right now for 199 a month for the first 12 months The Athletic.